This is the Creative and Cultural Podcast. Dedicated to creative collaboration and cultural innovation, we ask community leaders to share stories about business, history, technology, and the arts. This episode was recorded live at the 1888 Center, located in the historic district of Old Town Orange, California. Chapters is a five-part 1888 Center podcast series dedicated to stories surrounding the exclusion, forced removal, and internment of Japanese Americans. The program also parallels a narrative thread through the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA. Chapters is supported by the California Civil Liberties Public Education Program, administered by California State Library. With us tonight is Dr. Stephanie Takaragawa. Also with us tonight is Patty Hirahara. So we're now episode four of the Chapters podcast, and we're now shifting into a biographic kind of focus coming from policy um, and history roots. And so now between us both, um, between you both guests, I want to start with your stories and we'll move into sort of the broad question of the value of visual presentation in this, in this preservation effort. So let's, let's start with your, your backstories. How did, we, how did we get here? Okay. Um, I think for me, I was really unaware of the Japanese-American internment, which is unusual as a Japanese-American and not, because part of the thing that I learned was that um, people in my generation who were Japanese-American did not know about the internment because our parents never talked about it. Our grandparents certainly never talked about it. And so for me, I learned about it in college which is you know, surprising because this is before it was taught regularly in California public schools. So I was at USC and I remember talking to um, one of the professors about this internment and I thought, World War II, that's, it sounds like a really long time ago when you're like 18 years old. Sure. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, I was like, I'm sure my family was here. So I went home and I asked them and they said, yes, no, we don't talk about it. And that was the end of that discussion. And so at that time, you know, there's no internet, right? You have to go to the library and do all this kind of research. And it's a very different way of trying to understand things and no one will talk to you. Um, and things didn't exist. So I found out that the Japanese American National Museum was, which actually didn't exist at that point, um, they were starting focus groups to find out what people wanted to learn and put on display when there was a museum. So in like 1990-91, I got involved before the museum was um, created because I was still a college student and was able to sort of for the first time learn about it from people who were trying to put together this place in Los Angeles. Sure. Wow, that's incredible. Twelve years ago, my father uh, passed away. And so I approached the city of Anaheim and asked them if we could tell my family's story about a Japanese-American family who had been there since 1955 and uh, was able to bring their story to full circle in terms of they brought themselves to a new place and were able to reestablish themselves. And I think this story is one that I wish a lot of American cities would do. And so I'm glad Anaheim was one of them. That's excellent. So how did we get from discovering your family's pho photographs into Anaheim? What's the, the trajectory? How, how, how did at the Anaheim project begin? Well, basically because my father uh, took a job with uh, North American Rockwell during the aerospace boom. And so uh, the photographs and its history came later 
in terms of uh, what we did with them. But uh, we wanted to take those photographs, but also the history that my father had built up with his family during that time and tell it in Anaheim. And Anaheim has been very supportive. And photographs, as what you would like to talk about today, uh, can transcend a lot of issues. And so I look forward to answering your questions. Yeah, certainly. We're kind of, so the, a, an immediate topic at hand is sort of what does the visual offer this preservative effort? What are we keeping and, and gaining from photography and from visual display? And so um, I think one of the reasons I wrote my dissertation on the Japanese American National Museum was because in spite of the fact that nobody would talk about it, um, I still continued to work on it. And when the museum opened, I forced my family to go, which, you know, it, there was a lot of tension there. And I really wanted them to explore this with me. And um, after my grandmother went through the museum for the first time, it was the first time ever she voluntarily talked about the internment to anybody in the family, as far as I'm aware. And I think part of it was seeing all of those images and seeing all of the things and seeing the story recast in a way that made this narrative something that was shared and actually um, something that was not their fault. I think for decades, this was internalized potentially as this sort of fault of the people who were interned. They were told, you know, this is being done because of your race, because of your ethnicity, because of all of those things. And I, I know that there was an aspect of shame to it. So the power of the museum to transform the narrative and the way that people understood what was going on was one of the things that I wanted to study because it was actually quite common for people to come out of that museum and tell me, my grandmother's never talked about this, my grandfather's never said anything before, and now they're actually talking about it. So the silence that was surrounding that as people were sort of separated out and then brought together to revisit it in this way certainly had a very strong impact. So that's really what my dissertation was about. So it took a, it seems like it took a place to really announce that we can talk about this. Is yeah, and I think it also it? changed the way that people understood what had happened because they really had, you know, there's a lot of studies that say that they'd sort of internalized guilt and shame and they didn't want to pass this on to their family members and to their descendants and so, you know, obviously some people did not, they wanted to talk about it, they wanted, you know, this injustice to be righted and that's why what's happened today has happened. But, you know, for a very long time, and I talked to lots of other, you know, kids in college with me, you know, what do your parents or grandparents tell you about the internment? And they're like, nothing. And um, it went so far as that when my, when, when I was at the Japanese American National Museum, we were doing life histories and my grandparents would not give me their life history, but they would give it to somebody else. And then one of my friends' grandparents would not give him their life history, but they would give it to me. So we took turns in getting the stories from other people. But there was still definitely a stigma about talking to it to your own direct descendants at that time. You know, since then, my grandmother began talking about it much more freely, but it, you know, it took 45 years. Well, in terms of photographs, uh, that's how I met Stephanie. Uh, my father and my grandfather were taking baby pictures in the camp. And one of them happened to be of Stephanie's father. And so I found this name of Takaragawa on this photograph. And so I contacted her mother at USC. And then I found Stephanie and I called her and I said, I'd like to talk to you about your father's baby picture. 
And so we met, it was, and her mother says it's one of her favorite pictures of, her fa of Stephanie's father, her husband. And so photography came in as an introductory point. Uh, what I did with a lot of these photographs is that uh, once my father died, he left me with over 2,000 photos, so I started to find the people in these photos. And uh, a lot of the families didn't even know these photos existed. And so it gave them a piece of history that they thought was gone forever. But in regards to Anaheim, that in 1999, they had their Shades of Anaheim project. And so they asked minority uh, families to share their scrapbooks where they could digitize photographs and put them in their collection. And some of the camp pictures my father did give them the rights to digitize those and put it into their collection. So that was how Anaheim uh, was able to get some of these photos. And, uh, but the over 2,000 photos has now been donated to my father's alma mater, which is Washington State University. Gotcha. I see. Within, and your family, did, you, did your family experience a similar kind of discreetness about the history, or, or was it more of a, an open topic since there was already such a deep history of documentation within your family? Well, the problem was that uh, at the time, Japanese nationals were not allowed to have cameras. And so my father was an American citizen because he was born here. So a lot of the things, the secret darkroom was built by my grandfather, who was a Japanese national. And so he didn't want any evidence left around in terms of his darkroom. We have some photos, but we don't have much. But there was a reason, because he worried later on in life that maybe he would be persecuted or told, what did you do? But it appears now in looking through the WRA records that uh, the camp's administration did know, but they looked the other way. Really? Because there's a lot of things that I would never think would have been allowed that were allowed with my family. But they knew that these photographs were taken to preserve history, that they weren't doing anything malicious. And so they felt that uh, it was a good thing to let them do it. And you kind of mentioned already the next question about this digitalizing the, the, the documentation. What is being done to preserve specifically visual display and visual representation? with well, like Anaheim, for example? Well, the city of Anaheim, uh, we worked with them to create a template which can be used for any minority family in the future. So we used my family as an example. And so on the Anaheim Public Web's page, you could look at, uh, you would uh, Google Hirahara family, Anaheim, and uh, you would be able to see this. And it's a very extensive in, uh, project that they did. And uh, so it's a great showcase for anyone to duplicate, to be able to tell their own town's uh, pioneer story. Sure. Can, we, can you give us maybe a quick kind of walkthrough of what this template is? I mean, is it it's a simple process accessible to everyone, or is there more of a specialized knowledge needed for that? Or No, it's a very easy uh, template to go through. It goes through first generation and through fourth generation. And uh, you can see what I've done in order to preserve our family's collections uh, in the Pacific Northwest, at the Smithsonian, and uh, here in Anaheim. I see. Stephanie, can you comment on efforts for specifically visual 
preservation. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot more efforts, right? We know that photographs are a really good way of keeping those things, but they start to deteriorate, and so they've started to put a lot more things online. There's massive online collections of things now, and people are using machine learning in order to catalog and organize those things. So, you know, Densho is probably the biggest archive of Japanese-American stuff. Um, but you see that, like, places like Manzanar National Historic Site, they actually, even though they don't display things, they have a climate-controlled archive where they keep a lot of things um, together there. Um, there's sort of different places, the Japanese Amer American National Museum, Hirosaki Resource Center, the Smithsonian, obviously. But, you know, there are lots of ways that we're trying to retain things digitally um, and preserve those things. There's more of an attempt to use documentary film and preserve home um, or preserve and then transfer like home videos that were made in the camps. And one of the things that Patty said is, you know, people weren't supposed to have cameras because of this idea that everybody was a spy, but then they found out that lots of people did have cameras, there's a lot of home videos, and there's a lot of things that um, are now going into sort of larger collections that, you know, they are trying to make available to people, but you know, for the longest time it really was the Library of Congress's Ansel Adams photographs of Manzanar, which are still available, and so those kinds of things have always been there and have stood as the major representation, but I think that a lot of the stuff that people made now, like I found, you know, when my grandmother passed away a couple of years ago, I inherited two photo albums of photographs from the internment camp that no one knew existed. And so, you know, we digitized those, but you know, I think that more of those things are coming out. I think Patty's right in that everybody hid those because they didn't know whether or not they were gonna be um, penalized or prosecuted for having things that were considered to be illegal at the time. Sure. What, would either of you be able to maybe identify what allowed this, what seemed to kind of initiate this public sharing now that we're kind of going into the family stories? Well, I think a lot of it is the, um, Civil Liberties Act in 1988, right? Like this whole change in narrative that the Japanese American internment was not the result of Japanese Americans' fault, but really probably part of the most, you know, racist policy that the United States had ever enacted on a mass scale, and that, you know, people were castigated in this way, and the way that they started to internalize this um, for a very long time was super problematic, because, you know, we are still racially divided. And I think that, you know, coming to terms with that and the change in the discourse after um, the Civil Liberties Act helped in some ways say, look, in the public apology and the letter from um, Bush Sr., you know, all of these things together, the construction of the Japanese American National Museum, the education that was provided in California schools after the passing of um, the act, all of these things together really helped to change those ideas and it, they weren't hidden and they weren't sort of in everybody's, you know, closet in the back and, you know, I think it did help create a much more public awareness that changed the way people saw things. I think another aspect is the establishment of the Japanese American Confinement Sites Grant from the National Park Service because that, those grants focus on how to promote the 10 camps that were created during World War II and so those grants are allowing people to make documentaries, to create exhibits, to create uh, projects that are created to educate. And I think that is another reason why all of a sudden that we're able to see so much more. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to, now considering still with the visual aspect, um, what, what is sort of at risk with just visual presentation? Is there a loss or a... Um, with this overprivileging of kind of the visual, um, what is what else can we use? You know, what what do we have? 
Well, I think one of the big things we have are the oral histories, right? We have these recordings, we have these stories, we have all of these things of different people who lived this experience, and we tend to privilege visual documents because they're easy and we've sort of equated that with truth, like this is what it's really like, this is what it looked like, and we have all this visual evidence, but when the people tell you these stories and there's all these things that are missing, I think that that's super important. There's a lot of oral history, there's a lot of things like you know, music and things that you didn't hear in the camps, and you know, particularly material culture. You know, For me, one of the things that I found the most valuable was looking at the things that people made in the internment camps with the little resources that they had, right? Like they made these beautiful bird pins out of um, found wood and they you know, saved seashells that they found and all of these things that they made really shows you how little they had and what they were trying to do with the few resources that were given to them in really constructing a life and a home. And I think that that, more than the photographs, really gives me a sense of what the lived experience was like. I totally agree. Uh, the one thing that is always said is a picture is worth a thousand words. There was questions about the WRA photos that they were staged and people were happy and uh, they said, is that really what it was like during camp? But uh, a gentleman who was in Heart Mountain gave me his adage on this question and he said, you know, if over 75 years later, if I'm going to be remembered for one photo, I would want it to be a good one because if that's going to be my legacy, then that's what I want people to see. Sure, absolutely. Before we ask the, the fifth and ultimate question of the tool, I want to kind of open up the mic and if there's, and use this as a platform, if there's anything you feel that needs to be said now, um, I'm totally open to any extra thoughts or um, if there's an advantage or vantage point we haven't covered about visual presentation, um, I'm totally open to, if you'd like the, if you'd like the floor. Well, for me, is that uh, through the National Park Service Japanese American Confinement Sites Grant, the city of Anaheim's Anaheim Public Library was given a grant to tell the story of the Anaheim Japanese pioneers before and after World War II. I think this is a very important point. People don't think Anaheim has a lot to offer, but it does in its history. And so we're going to have an exhibit at the Museo uh, in downtown Anaheim from August to November of 2019. And we are asking students to come and help us do the research. Uh, we're getting oral histories from the people who are still living, uh, telling the story that a lot of uh, people may have forgotten. And that uh, we're hoping also we're very fortunate because the Anaheim Union High School District Superintendent Dr. Uh, Mike Matsuda, his mother was a freshman at Anaheim High School right before they had to leave. And uh, in the yearbook, she's shown in the only Japanese club photo that I know of at the high school. I'm a graduate of Anaheim High and also uh, the principal and uh, the students are very excited to help us in this endeavor. So if you can get a community excited, whereas their populace is not totally Japanese anymore, Hispanic, uh, a lot of other uh, nationalities live within the city of Anaheim, that is a great opportunity to bring us all together. And I think that's very worthwhile. Yeah, and I would say actually the construction of the Manzanar National Historic Site, Manzanar was one of the 10 internment camps. It's the one that's closest to where we are, even though it's four 
hours away. It's about 240 miles in the Owens Valley. It's the one that the Department of the Interior decided to use in order to construct one memorial that would sort of be the home base for everyone to interpret what happened at all 10 sites just because it is the most accessible and the fact that it's the most accessible and still 240 miles away from Los Angeles in a very tiny remote place um, shows you how remote all of the places were. And what they've done is they've reconstructed the original high school auditorium and made it into an interpretation center. And so it's not a museum because it doesn't have actual stuff because they can't preserve it properly, but it has exhibitions of all the things that they think are the most important from all 10 camps, but there is an emphasis on that particular site. And what's really nice is that they have really knowledgeable park staff. Um, you know, these people have been working at this site for 15 years and they've you know, spent most of their time doing interviews and oral histories with people all over California, actually all over the United States, and they go out and they get the stories and bring them back to the park. And, you know, even though it's four hours away, I've been a volunteer there for like the last five years. And it used to be more regular. I used to go every month or twice a month, but now it's been a really long time. But they have an annual pilgrimage, which is where everybody comes together, talks about different stories, and they honor different people who participate, and people now who are teaching people about this past. So I think that the annual pilgrimage at Manzanar is one of the most valuable things as well. Incredible, thank you. The Now for the fifth question, what tool or resource can you offer our audience um, in person and, au and audio about learning more or getting involved? What can we, what can we give? Um, I'm just keep talking. Um, Michi Weglin's Days of Infamy is a really good historic book that I think you know, really gives a good sense of what a lot of the camp issues were. And the other one, um, Roger Daniels' Politics of Prejudice, I think, also reflects a lot of things that have not just happened to the Japanese American, but just happen across time um, as different racial groups become pariahs in society. And I think that it's a really important way of recognizing how it is that our culture constructs these kinds of us-them mentalities. And we continue to do this, and I'm not exactly sure why. But I think that it's a really good tool, as well as there's actually um, personal justice denied. It's the warline re wartime relocations report on the incarceration of people, which shows that this was actually super problematic and not a good idea and really just a huge violation of civil liberties. The Densho website, the Japanese American National Museum, Manzanar, I mean, those to me are the big places, but Patty probably knows more specific and local resources. Well, anyway, for me is that uh, the City of Anaheim Project is that we're still looking for people to do aura histories um, about life in Anaheim before and after the war. Also, if they went to Poston, uh, the one of the camps, that we're looking for narratives, artifacts, documents, anything that they have uh, that could tell their time in that camp. Uh, because the exhibit, uh, we would like to show authentic pieces. And uh, if you'd like uh, more information, you can search, as I said earlier, uh, you can look at Anaheim Hirahara, that's H-I-R-A-H-A-R-A, and then you'll find on the site that it'll give you a link that you can find out more about our new project. It's exciting, and uh, we hope that the community will uh, communicate with us. Excellent, and, the, and people can find out how to uh, submit and offer help through the same link? Is that the way? Yes. It's all there? Mm -hmm. Awesome, okay. Well, I wanna thank you both for coming out and being a part of the episode four for Chapters. This was excellent. We'll thank our guests before going to Q&A.
Thank you for listening to the Creative and Cultural Podcast. The show is produced by Heritage Future. Our music is composed and performed by Dan Record. Support our mission by subscribing, reviewing, or donating today. Stay connected at heritagefuture.org.